Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the weekly Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast with me, Jonathan Davis, and Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. I think we should kick off again this week with a quick look at the market, Simon. Obviously, there's been a lot of news about the virus again this week. For a few weeks, we actually, it was sometimes only the second item in the news, but it's back in the headlines and top of the news, and some quite important news from the Chancellor, of course. Um, how has that been taken by the market? Well, it has been a, a difficult week for the market this week. As you mentioned, I think it's a bit of a case of a bout of long COVID kicking in, frankly. The, the, the FTSE All share was down nearly 3% on the week. The investment company sector, not as bad, actually, probably down about 1.5%. But we did see the sector average discount widen. Uh, as you remember, it's probably been in between about 5 and 6% over the last few months. And we've seen that uh, widen out in recent weeks. It actually hit about 8% at one stage uh, during this last week. and probably closing a little bit tighter, but there's certainly some wide discounts uh, popping up. Yes, it's going to be a nervous autumn, I think. That seems pretty clear, though I think the Chancellor's statement has done something to reassure business that there will be at least some support for companies going into the winter while these new restrictions remain. Of course, we've had our usual diet of company results and announcements, uh, including some quite significant corporate uh, announcements. Shall we start with those? And uh, I guess the big one is about Temple Bar, which we've talked about quite a lot this year. That's right. I mean, it has been a busy year for uh, manager changes. And uh, we've been on standby for Temple Bar now for a while. Back in April, Alistair Mundy, the long-serving manager of this fund, went on uh, extended leave of absence for health reasons. And at that stage, the board served protective notice on its investment manager and said it was looking to review management arrangements. Well, that review has run its course. They announced this week that they're looking to appoint an outfit called RWC to replace 91 as its investment manager. And the fund will be managed by a pair of gentlemen called Nick Purvis and Ian Lance. They will take over. And I think the interesting aspect of this manager change is, and the board made this quite clear, that their starting point with their whole review is whether to persist with this investment trust value-orientated uh, investment style. Uh, as we know, as we've discussed in, in previous weeks, um, it's been a really, really tough period for value investors. And Temple Bar is, is no exception. Its share price has halved this year. And they really had a hard look at it. And they came to the conclusion that this was not the time to change approach, that they believe that there is a, a real investment opportunity here. And uh, they selected the manager managers accordingly. And that's certainly the view of the RWC team. They believe that the UK marketplace uh, holds uh, a huge amount of value. They are looking to build uh, quite a concentrated portfolio of about 30 holdings uh, when they uh, take over the management of Temple Bar, uh, and they'll be running it on that value track. So it's, a, it's what Sir Humphrey would call a brave decision. They've gone with uh, something that uh, nobody else is going for at the moment. As you said, value has significantly underperformed the growth style of investing for a long time now, getting on for 10 years. And so if you are a contrarian, you believe in mean reversion and so on, you think that every dog must have its day and it's time for value stocks to come back in out of the cold. And they may well be right. I guess the question then is, well, what is going to happen to the rating of this trust and indeed whether shareholders are going to like this development or whether they're going to be unhappy about it? Uh, what, what do you think, Sam? Well, it's a very good question. And I think probably one of the key elements there is the decision that the board have made to actually reduce the target dividend or reduce Temple Bar's dividend. 
by about 25%. So it was yielding uh, about 8%, which, which looked pretty high, it looked like a tough yield to be able to sustain. It was one of the AIC dividend heroes. But again, the, the board have looked at this, they've discussed with RWC what they think is a, a sustainable yield, and they've rebased their dividend accordingly. But they've made it clear that even with that 25% cut in the dividend, they expect it to be uncovered, uh, certainly this year and in 2021. And they'll use revenue reserves to, to support the new level. Uh, and then thereafter, they hope to grow it. But when the results actually a day or so later came out for the interim results for the first half of Temple Bar, it, it showed that the earnings per share were actually down 70% in the first half of this year, which just shows the impact that the, the dividend cuts and suspensions across the UK market are having on some of these fund managers. I mean, I think this one is I've been hit particularly hard, but it, this is what the board have, have had to deal with, and they've made their decision accordingly. Well, I guess that's not a total surprise, because if you are a dyed-in-the-wool value investor or a deep value investor, as we call them, you tend to be looking for companies that have significant yields, high yields and low price earnings ratios or low price-to-book ratios. Those are the kind of criteria that value investors look for. And when COVID came out of out of a blue sky, so to speak, if you were holding a lot of those companies, you would certainly feel the impact because the companies often have those ratings because they are not doing very well. So it has been a bit of a trauma, as you say, and, and Temple Bar seems to have been hit worse than most. And it's interesting. I mean, they, it's not the first of the AIC's dividend heroes, I think, to suffer a setback, to be taken off the board, so to speak, or probably be taken off the board, let's be fair. There have been a couple of others, haven't there, this year? That's right. So I think we started the year with I think the 21 AIC dividend heroes, um, British and American, which is a slightly more, it's a smaller specialist fund. They suspended their dividend earlier this year, uh, quite early on, following that market sell-off. And then, of course, we heard uh, the news that Perpetual Income and Growth would look to merge with Murray Income. So effectively, Perpetual Income and Growth will disappear off the board, to use your terminology. So the numbers of AIC dividend heroes have and are being reduced. And I'm sure other people will look at the remaining names and, and try to work out if there are any other likely fallers. But it's fair to say that, you know, the investment trust structure does provide an advantage. We've talked about it before in terms of the use of revenue reserves and even, if necessary, the payment of capital out as income. But it, it's not a given that that will necessarily happen. It's, it will be a tough decision for some boards, one suspects, uh, if we don't see a kind of rebound on the dividend front, for particularly for in the UK marketplace. Yes, I think one could also mention that the AIC perhaps prudently has recently started a second list, which is called uh, Emerging Dividend Heroes. These are companies which have been paying dividend for uh, not quite as long as the first list, but they're coming up to their 20th anniversary or something like that. Uh, and maybe they'll have to take over. It's, it's always sad when you see one long record go, but that is the nature of life in the investment trust sector. It really is a case of adapt or die. Uh, we've seen that time and time again. But the good news, meanwhile, is that we may have some other new trusts coming to the market. We've had uh, news and reports of some intended IPOs. Perhaps you could bring us up to date on that aspect of affairs, Simon. Yeah, that's right. So this year, unsurprisingly, has been a, a quiet year for IPOs. I think we've only seen one to date uh, in the investment company sector. Uh, but it does feel like there's a number been stored up to, to hit us in the last few months of the year. So this week, we learnt via the media that uh, Schroeder's were looking to launch a fund called British Opportunities Trust, which sounds quite patriotic. Um, but it's an, an interesting sounding vehicle. They're looking to raise up to 250 million. It will be run by a gentleman called Rory Bateman uh, and Tim Creed. And the idea is it's a hybrid strategy. So 
They will back both publicly listed companies and private companies, but they're looking to invest in British businesses. Actually, you know, to your comments about what the Chancellor has done this week, there is a kind of almost an altruistic element, I think, to what they're trying to do. They're looking to support UK employment through the pandemic by backing high quality small businesses that need financing to see them through. So an interesting strategy. And uh, I mean, at a time when the discounts on mid and small cap investment trust investing in the UK are on relatively wide discounts, it would be very interesting to see how they how they fare. Yes, that might also qualify for a Sir Humphrey description as brave, but uh, good luck to them. Sort of shades of dig for Britain and things like that. It's always uh, good to have a an altruistic motive, but whether investors will go for that will be interesting to see. What else on the IPO front? Anything else you can tell us on the IPO front? So uh, we've also learned that Samford Deland, I hope I pronounced that properly, Asset Management, uh, are looking to launch a UK Buffettology Smaller Companies Trust. Uh, and again, according to media reports, they're looking to raise about £100 million or so. Uh, it will be managed by a gentleman called Keith Ashworth-Lord. And the idea is that they have adopted or they will adopt or they will use or pursue a Warren Buffett type uh, investment approach. And the idea is that you don't look at uh, investing as a minority shareholder. It's through the lens of being an owner that you should assess your investment as if you're buying the whole company. So they're looking to build a portfolio of between 30 and 50 smaller UK companies. Uh, and again, take advantage of uh, probably some of the value that undoubtedly exists in the UK marketplace. As it happens, I do know Keith Ashworth Lord. I first met him more than uh, 20 years ago when he was uh, still a humble analyst. It has been an extraordinary success story. In fact, he wrote a book about his sort of Buffettology methods. He had to actually license the use of the name Buffettology, but it's been very successful. He looks for uh, companies, you know, with the familiar Buffett-like qualities of a moat, a competitive moat that... Uh, deters competitors, a high return on equity, and so on, and and looks to hold these stocks for a long time, uh, allowing their uh, superior return characteristics to come through into the share price in due course. It's been very successful as an open-ended fund. It's going to be invested in rather larger companies than this new trust is going to do, I believe. Uh, But it's been very successful and uh, attracted a lot of retail support. It's um, getting close to a billion in assets in the open-ended fund. So he has developed a name and a following. And I wouldn't be surprised if this, as it were, this sort of clone, this smaller clone, does attract quite a lot of retail interest. Whether it also appeals to wealth managers and so on, we'll have to wait and see. But it's an interesting um, development. I also know that they were looking to try and launch this trust earlier in the year, but had to postpone it because of the market panic. So we mentioned perpetual income and growth and Murray income. It so happens that Murray Income have produced uh, their annual results to the end of June. What was what was their story? So Murray Income have had a good period, actually. The the annual results to the end of June, they saw an NAV total return. It was down, to be fair, 5%, but that compared with a 13% fall for the, the FTSE All Share. And certainly if you look over a longer period, three to five years, their numbers are actually now coming through quite strongly. They attribute their outperformance to their focus on quality companies. But again, it's interesting, we, we talk about the earnings per share, the impact that the markets have had or the environment for dividends have had, their earnings per share were actually down 13% in that period. But they still managed to increase their dividend. Uh, and that's the 47th consecutive year of dividend growth. And, and certainly the board's intention is to keep that record going. As you mentioned uh, earlier, they will merge with perpetual income and growth in very short order. And again, they're going to um, make some changes to the structures just to strengthen 
the prospects on the dividend front. So it's a slightly technical one, but the revenue reserves will be diluted down by the fact that they're going to merge with professional income growth. So they will seek powers from shareholders to pay dividends out of capital if necessary, just to give themselves a safety net uh, should those circumstances arise. Nevertheless, it's definitely good news for the Murray Income and their management team. It's uh, good for them that they're going to uh, be able to go forward. And their track record, I'm sure, was uh, one of the factors that convinced the Board of Professional Income Growth to go with them. Now, you won't expect this podcast to pass uh, without a mention of our friend Hypnosis Songs Fund. We talked about IPOs, but we keep on talking about Hypnosis, ticker song, uh, because it's been extremely active in issuing new shares, what we call secondary issuance, in the last few months. And we rather jokingly said last week, well, we hadn't heard from them last week, so come on, guys, you must do something. And sure enough, this week, what happens? They come up with another funding placement. So what's happened there? So you're absolutely right. They had a C-share back in July, which was successful, raised just short of £240 million. And then they announced this week they were looking to raise an additional £250 million through a placing at £1.16, which was about a 10p discount to where the share price had got to at the end of the previous week. Uh, they came in a little bit short of that. They raised gross proceeds of £190 million, uh, but it's still a fair amount of capital. And it's interesting that they've gone down the, the placing route I think really that reflects the fact that they have got quite a pipeline of investment opportunities uh, by their own admission. And I think they're quite confident that they can deploy this new capital in pretty quick order. So one of the things you've always got to be careful when you do these kind of placings or fundraising is that you don't dilute down existing shareholders by effectively leaving cash on the balance sheet. But I think in the case of hypnosis, they're talking about a pipeline of a billion pounds worth or some, some significant number, uh, so they are very, very confident they can get this money to work in quick order. Well, I think they better be right about that. I mean, one of our listeners actually uh, contacted me to ask the question, an obvious question, which is why, if they'd used a C-share issue last time in order to avoid dilution of the existing shareholders, why have they gone out and uh, gone for a placing again quite so soon thereafter without going down the C-share route? That's a good question, I think. How do you think they would answer that? I think they would say it's a reflection of their confidence. They can deploy that capital in in very quick time. I think the other aspect as well is that now that their profile has increased, uh, they're gaining a very strong following from retail and institutional shareholders as well, that they can raise quite a significant amount of money in, in very quick time. Institutional shareholders would be quite attracted. Placings are invariably done at a bit of a discount to the share price, the kind of screen share price, and that's certainly been the case this time round. And ultimately, they've raised the money because they can, and they're very confident, clearly, they can invest it. So what's happened to the rating of that trust? I mean, you would imagine they, as long as it continues to trade at a premium and as long as they continue to be able to rustle up deals that they think they can fund or they can find that are still attractive, are they going to go and do it until the uh, the premium disappears? What's happened to the rating this week? It is a very good question. In fact, they're one of the weaker performers this week, and that's a function of the fact that uh, at the end of last week, I think their share price had reached about 126p. The placing was at £1.16. It's ended the week about £1.15. So they've got to be a bit careful. I mean, we've seen this for some of the funds in the infrastructure sector as well, that when you do these placings, invariably they're at a discount to the existing share price. The evidence, certainly in the infrastructure subsector, has been that the share prices take a little bit of a hit, but then they recover. And hypnosis will clearly be hoping that the same is true for them. But you do have to look after your rating. It is hugely important, particularly if you have plans to raise uh, additional capital as time goes by. 
Yeah, you don't want to be too greedy too soon, if you like. That might be a rather uh, plebeian way of putting it. I did note also that they managed to raise a little bit more via this uh, new platform primary bid, which is uh, open only to retail investors. So if you're aware of primary bid and you had a chance to contact them, you could have participated in this placing uh, even as a retail investor. But unfortunately, only up to a certain uh, total limit are they allowed to offer that to you. Let's move on to another fundraising, which is uh, from a property company. You might think that's surprising in the current market, but this, of course, is in the right sector in the property market, which is a company called Urban Logistics REIT, or SHED, as its uh, ticker describes it. What are they up to? That's correct. I mean, the property market, we're seeing very big discounts uh, on the more conventional property funds, but those in what some people describe all the beds or sheds end of the property market are actually trading very well. And uh, Urban Logistics, as its ticker would suggest, is very much uh, in the shed end of the property market. They were looking to raise up to 100 million for replacing. Um, they announced off the market closed on Friday that they'd managed to raise 89 million pounds, so a fair chunk of capital. It's got a market cap of just under 300 million at the moment, so that's a substantial increase in size. And they're looking to build their portfolio out. They've identified a pipeline of 59 buildings, which they, uh, they're they looking at an initial yield of about 6.4%. So again, this enables them to, to grow their portfolio. Right. So this is another sector where there appears to be, or at least they are still able to find deals that look attractive. And the only question, of course, is at some point we may get to saturation or they may run out of good opportunities. But uh, good luck to them. How do you normally regard it if you set a target for a placing and you end up coming short, as we've talked about, both these two have done? Is that is that necessarily a bad thing? Is that bad PR? Is that Does that damage your uh, credibility a little bit? I don't think so. You know, we're quite used to seeing the infrastructure funds now saying they're looking to raise 200 billion and then they get very oversubscribed and uh, investors get scaled back. But away from that end of the marketplace, it's not uncommon to see placing targets of 50, 100, 200 million and then people coming in, uh, coming in a little bit short. So that's not unusual at all. Clearly, if you say you're looking to raise up to 100 million, particularly when you're looking at a specific pipeline or a a portfolio of assets and you come in at 10, then that clearly is not good news. But I think that in the case of Urban Logistics, 89 million out of 100, I think they'll be relatively happy with that. I think people accept that the conditions for fundraising at the moment are not entirely straightforward, even in asset classes that are in demand. So there's a lot of moving parts in the marketplace at the moment and there's clearly a lot of uncertainty. So I think they would regard that as a good result. And would most of the, of the money in that placing, would that have come from wealth managers or would it, would it have come from the retail sector, the retail investor, if you like? I think in the case of Shed, they've got quite a strong wealth manager following. There are also institutional investors who are playing some of these more specialist commercial property names uh, and even things like social housing as well. So you do see institutional investors alongside some of the wealth managers. But, you know, as they grow larger, so more and more people become aware of them. And ultimately, you know, these things offer attractive levels of income and there's a lot of retail demand for those type of strategies. Well, while we're on the property sector, we've also heard this week from a couple of what we might call more conventional property investment trusts, most of which have taken a bit of a beating this year because of their traditional exposure not to these logistics or warehouses or those kind of specialist properties, but to overall commercial property. Who's been reporting this week and what have they had to say about the state of the property market? We saw two of the mainstream commercial property funds uh, announce results this week. So we had Standard Life Investments Property Income. They had their interim results out for the six months to the end of June. 
NAV was down, perhaps unsurprisingly, at 9%, but actually share price terms, they were down 31%, which is, again, not uncommon for that type of fund. A mixed picture, there's definitely some good things coming through, like all the commercial property funds, um, rent collection or revenue has certainly been hit. At the end of August, their rent collection stood at 75% for Q3, and that compares with 81% for Q2. They have reduced their dividend. And in fact, their total dividend for the period was 83% covered. But Standard Life Investments Property Income benefit from the fact that they're actually quite underweight uh, retail. They've only got 8% of the portfolio in retail, and that compares with 25% for the benchmark. So retail is quite obviously a very difficult place to be at the moment. So they've certainly benefited from that. The other name that has reported this week, and again, interim results to the end of June, and that's UK Commercial Property REIT. Their NAV total return uh, was down 5%, and the share price return, again, 31%, and, you know, really savagely rating. Their discount widened from 1% to 29% uh, in the period. Retail and leisure holdings hit particularly hard in terms of their NAV performance. But actually, um, you know, they've sold some some assets during the interim period. Um, so it just shows that the property market, there are still deals to be done. Uh, and again, at the end of August, at least, their rent collection for Q2 and Q3 was about 77%. And in common with all these kind of mainstream UK commercial property funds, they have reduced their dividend, but they're maintaining it at that lower rate. Uh, so that's the positive aspect. Yes, I suppose this is one sector where what the Chancellor has to say is probably relevant because these uh, conventional property trusts are very dependent, as you say, on the rental they can collect from their business uh, tenants. And if, as some people believe, the latest package from the Chancellor obviously is less attractive than the furlough scheme that they were having before, and if it has an effect on consumer demand, then it may be a bit of a negative for some of these property trusts. But we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. But the market, I think, is not taking any chances with these property trusts. The question I have to put to you, I guess, Simon, is this. If you were paying a yield of, say, 5%, and it turns out that in future the sustainable yields on your property portfolio falls by, say, to 4% or falls by 20%, would you expect that to result in, a, in an equivalent decline in the share price of the, of the trust? Yield is a hugely important aspect of the property sector. Clearly, it's one of the main characteristics, one of the main attributes of these type of funds. And with the possibility of falling yields, and clearly that's going to hit the rating. There's an argument in the property sector at the moment, you know, how can you properly value some of these these properties, given that some of them have stopped yielding anything at all? Forget the, the listed investment companies. Personally, you still see these vehicles as possessing real assets. Um, I think we are clearly in the middle of a, of a storm at the moment. I think it's likely to be quite difficult for a period of time yet. But I think you'd like to think that a lot of these these properties do have a genuine value. And it's interesting, some of the stories in the media that are coming through, that there are some more value-orientated investors, uh, particularly from overseas, actually kind of circling, uh, not just the property funds in the investment company sector, but uh, talking about British land, land securities and, and uh, you know companies of that nature. They're attracting some overseas interest. In other words, that these things are quite beaten up at the moment for understandable reasons. But ultimately, if you can look through it, if you can take a long-term view, then they quite possibly could offer some quite attractive value. Yes, I think that's a very fair point, because in episodes like this, there's always comes a point where somebody is smart enough to realise that the, the decline in values has gone too far, if you like, and there are opportunities to be had. And I guess we would we would see that, though. We would see that start to be reflected in discounts and prices of these things 
if indeed there was a sense that they were now trading at the wrong price. Uh, so we'll have to watch that as well. It's an interesting sector, though. Let's catch up with uh, some other results. We've heard from Bailey Gifford Shin Nippon, which is a Japanese smaller companies trust run by the trust manager of the day, which is Bailey Gifford, who've been hoovering up assets in all directions. What's been the story with uh, Shin Nippon? So they had interim results out to the end of July, and actually a pretty decent period for Shin Nippon. Their NAV total return was up 5%. And that compares with a decline of 9% uh, for their benchmark index. In share price terms, it was even stronger. They were up 8%. In common with the, the other Bailey Gifford vehicles, they're looking for really attractive growth companies. It's quite a diversified portfolio. That Japanese small cap market is, is, is certainly a very interesting one. Some very dynamic and interesting companies in the portfolio. And in fact, the manager there, Praveen Kumar, he believes that actually the current climate has created some, some really tremendous growth opportunities for smaller businesses uh, in Japan. And again, it kind of points to this, uh, you know, are we seeing a real structural change in society? This is a common theme now with some of these belly Gifford funds, that some of the patterns that have been identified have just been accelerated this year. Uh, and certainly Shin Nippon seems to be tapping into that in terms of uh, the Japanese market. Well, it's certainly a bit of a surprise to see that the trust is trading on a premium. I mean, that's very surprising for a smaller company's investment trust. Um, I'm not quite sure how the other Japanese trusts are trading, but to be on a 5% premium as a small cap company is, uh, is, is fairly unusual, isn't it? I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, the, the average rating of a Japanese investment trust, certainly for the ones that invest in larger companies, is probably about 8% at the moment. And in terms of Shin Nippon's nearest kind of rivals or nearest peers, it's probably a high single digit. So, yes, it does stand out in terms of its rating. But I think it's fair to say that it is one that has kind of captured uh, retail investors' interest. It has issued shares in the past when it's been on, on a premium. But, uh, yeah, it's probably on about a 5 6% premium at the moment. OK, so let's move to a different part of the world and talk about European opportunities, uh, whose ticker is JEO. It's managed by uh, Alex Darwell, and this trust has recently changed its uh, management in the sense that the manager has formed his own company and is now managing it himself rather than being under the uh, Jupiter Asset Management umbrella. There's obviously been some controversy affecting this trust regarding a company called Wirecard in Germany. Can you fill us in on what uh, their results have been and how that explains or illustrates what is happening in their new uh, independent life? So European Opportunities had its annual results out to the end of May. And in that period, reasonably respectable, their NAV was up very, very slightly. And that compared with a decline of 2% for their benchmark index. Uh, their share price total return, not as convincing, down 7%. But really, as you alluded to, the story here is what happened after the end of May, particularly with Wirecard, which has had a very well-publicised fall from grace. Um, it was one of the largest holdings in European Opportunities Portfolio. The Alexander Darwell sold it the day that the news came out that things might not all be as they seemed. Um, and it's fair to say that there have been a number of names uh, in the portfolio, which is relatively concentrated, that he has changed uh, over the last year or so. So maybe it is a case of, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. I mean, he sold things like Carnival, Adidas, Grenka, which was sold in September, uh, and a few other holdings. But he is also exposed to the healthcare sector, which has clearly been a good place to be this year, and in fact over any number of years. And he has a number of uh, digital holdings as well. Um, and he's actually looked to tilt the portfolio away from consumer names towards more 
business to business companies. So I think it's fair to say it's clearly been a tough year for Alexander Darwell and European opportunities. I mean, the share price is down 18% so far this year. It has been derated. So it's a case really of just trying to um, put a line under that uh, bout of bad performance and, and rebuild his reputation again. Yes, it's not been a great way to start your life as an independent fund management company, but at least he has to actually decisively when the accounting scandal at Wildcard was, was exposed. Uh, and as we said, I think, in an earlier podcast, I mean, the European sector remains pretty unloved at the moment, does it not? I mean, there were signs of life uh, a couple of weeks ago, but uh, how is the sector trading at the moment? And how is uh, where is European opportunities in that spectrum? So European opportunities are on about a 13% discount, and it wasn't too long ago, uh, only about a year or two ago, would it have been trading on a premium rating. But to be fair, as you rightly say, the majority of uh, investment trusts invested in Europe are out of favour at the moment, trading on double-digit discounts. If you take the JP Morgan European fund, that has two legs, uh, and they're nearer to a 20% discount or so at the moment. One or two exceptions, funnily enough, the Bailey Gifford European Growth Fund, that's on about a 6% discount, and the BlackRock Fund on about a 4% discount. But, uh, you know, the two Henderson funds, they're trading around 11, 12% discounts at the moment, despite the fact that they've got pretty decent uh, track records. So, again, uh, a very out of favour part of the, of the marketplace at the moment. So if you're looking for value, that might be one place you might look at, at least uh, on the face of it. But, of course, you need to dig deeper into the reasons why these trusts are not being uh, appreciated as well as they were in the marketplace. Let's talk about J.P. Morgan. You mentioned J.P. Morgan uh, in the European context. But let's talk about J.P. Morgan Global Growth and Income, which is a trust that uh, is trading at a very healthy premium now. Uh, and that's something to do with the way that it manages its dividend policy. Tell us what their results are and, and what the story is there, Simon. So they had their annual results out to the end of June and, you know, pretty decent period. They had an NAV total return up 6%. That was ahead of their benchmark, which was up 5%. Uh, and their share price total return was brought in line with the, with the benchmark. We have talked about this one before. It's very much a best ideas global equity portfolio. The idea is that the, that the three fund managers take advantage of the fact that JP Morgan Asset Management have a, a team of 80 analysts looking at stocks around the world, and they try and cherry pick their best ideas. In addition to which, they have an enhanced dividend policy. So even though there is no particular income requirement in the, in the way that they build their portfolio, in fact, if anything, they've got more of a growth tilt. They pay effectively 4% of net assets back to shareholders every year. And uh, that has attracted quite a good deal of interest. So they're yielding just under 4% at the moment. But as you rightly say, they're, they're trading on, on a small premium to their NAV. Yes, it's an interesting subject, this enhanced uh, distribution policy, which we've talked about before. Uh, you're guaranteed to pay out 4% of the NAV at the end of your financial year. It does at least allow your shareholders to have an element of predictability about what their income is going to be over the next four quarters. And that obviously has proved very popular. Otherwise, the rating would not have improved as much as it has done. But I suppose you have to wonder whether um, there is a little bit of mirror work here going on. You're taking your uh, yield from somewhere always. And uh, this may be uh, something that investors should think about. But anyway, so far it's been very successful and uh, good luck to them. Let's move on to the renewable sector. We've heard this week from Bluefield Solar Income, one of the several renewable energy trusts that have, if we're talking about premiums, are certainly in the business of trading well. They've had their annual results. What, what was the story there? So they had annual results out to the end of June and a pretty decent set of results. Their, their NAV 
total return was about 6.6%. And again, in common with some of the, the, the themes and the patterns that we've seen with some of the other renewable infrastructure funds, the weakness of energy prices has clearly been a detractor, but this particular vehicle has benefited from fixing power prices. So that uh, worked for them. Uh, in addition to which, the solar irradiation was particularly positive. It must have been a very sunny period uh, because that was up uh, 11%. And also they've reduced their discount rate. So uh, again, we've discussed this before on these renewable infrastructure funds. This is a mark to model NAV. So you look at discounted cash flows. So the discount rate is all important. And that's been reduced from 72 to 6%. So that's kind of positive in terms of their NAV. So that's kind of where they are. Probably possibly more important for shareholders is the dividend. So their 7.9p dividend for the period was in line with their target. And actually they've come out and said their dividend target for the next financial year will be, will be 8p. So a progressive dividend policy, but they have removed the link to RPI. And that's, uh, again, that's been a common feature uh, across all these renewable uh, infrastructure funds. I think off the top of my head, I don't think any of them now are linked. Uh, their dividends are linked to, to RPI, although many of them look to uh, pay a progressive dividend. The other thing to note on this, and this is interesting, actually, is that, as the name would suggest, they are a solar fund. They've invested uh, up until now in solar assets, but they are looking to branch out, to broaden out uh, to other renewable energy technologies. Uh, and That includes wind and hydro, uh, and they're looking to get permission uh, from shareholders to invest up to 25% of their, their portfolio in those areas. Yes, that's always an interesting development when a trust changes its focus or expands its uh universe, if you like, to invest in other types of opportunities. I suppose the questions we have to ask as an investor would be, well, I understand that you know about uh, solar power, but uh, does it actually translate into knowledge about wind and hydro? And will you be as expert in picking projects there as you were in the solar field? And does it also suggest that you maybe you're running out of opportunities in solar? In other words, that it's about as good as it's going to get. I guess these are two questions we should be uh, bearing in mind as we think about the future of trusts like that. Of course, they may well be right. They may be able to put together some uh, fantastic portfolio of wind and hydro and other renewable projects, but they are starting behind others who are already well invested in that sector. So let's finish up perhaps by talking about a couple of other funds which do something distinctive. It's often said that uh, investment trusts, in order to be successful these days, it helps anyway if you have some kind of distinctive proposition to put to the market. Obviously, we've seen that with hypnosis in particular. That's something that hasn't been done before. But let's talk about a couple of trusts that uh, do their own thing in a specific way that is not very common. Let's start with one of the more conventional ones, which is the Sheehallen Fund. It's another Bailey Gifford Fund uh, recently launched. Tell us what their story has been now that they've been going for a little while. The Shihalim Fund had its interim results out for the six months to the end of July this week. Their NAV was up 4% and actually the share price was up 8%. So they've made seven investments this year and effectively they're looking at uh, investing in unlisted private companies, but uh, very mature private companies. So this is kind of late stage funding rounds. So of the seven investments this year, that includes companies such as Grail and Graphcore and Epic Games, and they've also made some follow-on investments as well, and that's a very important part of the, of the strategy, the ability to be able to follow your money. Um, so as at the end of July, 62% of the fund's uh, initial capital had been invested. And also, actually, interestingly enough, Airbnb, which they have a holding in the portfolio, and Grail 
have both filed to go public. However, it's a, again, it's very important to note with this particular vehicle is that they are looking to maintain their investments. Um, they, they don't see as IPOs as uh, liquidity events, and that's certainly the case uh, in those two instances. So in other words, they're not looking to cash in immediately. They have some faith in the, in the companies to have actually further growth potential once they have been listed. That's uh, an interesting one. Everybody knows about Airbnb at least. It's uh, the kind of thing that might attract some interest from people who at least understand what Airbnb does, though I believe the Airbnb model has come under some question in recent uh, weeks and months. Let's look at something and then finally, which is perhaps more distinctive, that is an investment trust we haven't mentioned before, and this is something called Menharden, ticker MHN, trading on a big discount. So is that something we should be looking at? What does that do and, and how does that differ from the kind of mainstream trust that we've been talking about uh, so far? So this is a specialist uh, investment trust. It looks to invest in businesses and operations delivering or benefiting from efficient use of energy resources, which sounds interesting. They had their half-year results out to the end of June, um, and any of the total return of they actually uh, were down 4% in that period in any of the terms. Their share price was uh, actually off 13%. So, uh, you know, difficult time, but then that's true of uh, a number of investment trusts clearly over the first half of this year. When you look at the portfolio, though, it is an interesting portfolio. I think, you know, probably like most people, we've categorised it in the kind of environmental alternative energy type area. But if you look at the names in the portfolio, certainly in the top 10, you'll find uh, rather familiar names such as Alphabet and Microsoft. Um, There's a couple of railway operators in there and also Airbus as well. So there is quite a wide remit uh, in terms of the companies that they're looking to to back. Uh, it's fair to say that their long-term track record has been a little bit mixed, and that's probably reflected in the fact they're trading on a 26% discount or so at the moment. With a market cap of £70 million, um, it's certainly not the largest investment trust, and it's probably off the radar for, for a number of people. But it's, uh, it's certainly trying to do something a little bit different. Yes, I'd be surprised to see Airbus in a portfolio that... Uh claims to be doing something for the environment over the course of its life, but you never know. Stranger things have happened. The other thing that's interesting about them is that the benchmark they use is not, as most other investment trusts are, you know, based on some kind of index of uh, performance. Uh, they've gone for something rather different. And, and actually, I think it has some attractions. But uh, why don't you tell us what that is and, uh, and explain how that works? So you're right that they've kind of formalised the fact that uh, historically they may have looked at how they were performing versus uh, the MSCI world, which is a, a benchmark of, of global equities. But what they've said is actually moving forward, they will measure their performance against uh, RPI plus 3%. In other words, not a, an equity benchmark at all. And that is a little bit unusual. We do see it in um, some of the investment trust companies in the flexible investments space who uh, really are trying to generate absolute returns. So often we talk about relative returns, but uh, ultimately people want to make uh, absolute returns. That's far more important. And an RPI plus 3%, in other words, uh, a real return over inflation is ultimately what I suspect most people are quite interested in. So as I said, it is a little bit unusual, but you do see it very much. Um, I'm just trying to think of an example, something like probably a Rick Capital Partners or a Caledonia Investment. Some of these uh, more long-term vehicles, so they will certainly keep an eye on how they're performing in absolute terms over a long period. Yes, it's a very interesting point because, I mean, we tend to get obsessed and the industry tends to get obsessed by relative performance, uh, certainly measured over short-term periods uh, against a benchmark. 
But of course, as many people have pointed out, you can't live off a relative return. You need an absolute return to actually uh, generate some increase in wealth from your investing. And uh, when inflation is so low as it is at the moment, adopting a benchmark or a target or a performance comparator, whatever you like to call it, of linked to inflation actually speaks perhaps more directly to the concerns of those who are investing than uh, some kind of relative return benchmark-based uh, comparison. Do you think that other, other trusts will go down this route, or do you think this is really much a, a pretty a minority interest in terms of benchmarking yourself in this way? As you say, some of the flexible investment trusts do have that already, but is it going to catch on, do you think, as a, as a way of uh, measuring your performance? I think it has merit for the reasons that you just suggested, and particularly if you are saying to your investment manager, I want over a period of time to generate absolute returns. But clearly, in many instances, the, the fund managers have been told to invest in UK equities and beat the FTSE all share or the, the FTSE small cap or wherever it might be. So they would say, well, that's going to be very different to RPI plus whatever percent you, you may wish to add. If you look at you know how the performance of wealth managers uh, is measured, that does have an element of that kind of uh, real returns over the long term in their various internal measurement systems. And I think it's it's fair to say in that flexible investments subsector that you could see a number more really moving away from just looking at equity indices, which particularly when they're skewed by some very large companies. We've talked about the performance of some of the, the big US tech companies this year and how they drive the performance of these indices. Um, but the reality is that particularly in diversified portfolios that you're invariably underweight those type of names. So maybe a, a long term absolute type of performance is, is more relevant. Certainly when inflation is so low, some people might say, my goodness, that doesn't sound a lot, 3% above RPI, that doesn't sound like a a 3% real return. But if you buy an index-linked bond, for example, they're currently trading at negative real returns. In other words, the value of your investment is being eroded by even minimal inflation over the longer term. 3% above inflation is, as it happens, pretty much what if you were a Victorian rentier, you would have been very happy with 3% above inflation because there was very little inflation. They lived in a period when inflation was largely unknown and everything was valued on the basis of your income potential. And uh, 3% above RPI is uh, not an unreasonable target. It would be interesting to see whether others in the current climate when the interest rates are so low do actually go for that kind of return. So that's the end of our podcast this week, except to say we haven't mentioned so far, and I think we should mention this to you, uh, we should mention you had a call this week with... Uh, the most venerable of the dividend heroes, which is the City of London Investment Trust, which I think has the longest track record of uh, increasing its dividend year on year for, I think, more than 50 years now. You had a conversation with them, and uh, what was what was the message from there? So, Joe Curtis has been the long-standing manager of City of London Investment Trust, and I think the intention is that he does a few more years Yet, um, to shareholders' mind, I think I suspect City of London is best known for the fact that it's got 54 consecutive years of, of dividend growth, which is a, a tremendous record. And I think there's no sign of that record being uh, broken anytime soon. It's fair to say that they've had a trickier year this year. The, the NEV performance is off about 22%, which compares with probably about a 20% fall in the FTSE All Share. But it's in the share price department that actually it's been a bit tougher for the City of London. They have been slightly derated this year, but their long-term track record remains very strong. Talking to Job this week, he believes that the UK market is fundamentally cheap. His portfolio has benefited from being underweight. Some of the oil and gas names, and he's been moving out of Shell and actually buying 
Total uh, as his preferred oil and gas option. But he's got holdings in, in, in banks and uh, tobacco companies, a very diversified portfolio, and really uh, you know, keep an eye on that uh, long-term uh, dividend growth story. Very, very key part of what he tries to do. It's a useful reminder that uh, it's not a crime to be quite dull in investment terms. If you're in it for the long haul, a steady return over a many period of years and a rising dividend is not a bad combination. It may not be as exciting as chasing uh, high capital returns, uh, but there's a price for that, of course. And uh, for the last 10 years, we've seen companies that have gone for growth have done very well. But there is still a place for the uh, the slow but steady and the tortoise and the hare story comes into mind. And uh, I hope City of London Trust won't be insulted if I describe them as a bit of a tortoise. But it served its shareholders well over many, many years. And uh, long may that continue. Simon, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you very much for your time and your thoughts. And we'll look forward to talking again next week when no doubt we'll be hearing from hypnosis again. Thanks very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.